Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and it's my pleasure to host the Emerge Australia podcast series in which we speak to people impacted by and associated with MECFS and long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. If we focus for a moment on John Lennon's iconic song, Imagine, I wonder if we can imagine a world where there is no discrimination, no stigma, a world where the voices of those suffering invisibly in silence are heard, seen, and addressed in a world where we have a cure for MECFS and long COVID, or at least a biomarker, or at very least a diagnostic test. Imagine all the people. Today we talk with Simone Isons, Emerge Australia's Research Director, who has been a key member of our Emerge Australia team since 2018. Simone was a fit, healthy, professional woman, a psychologist for many years in both private practice and organisational settings. Simone lives with severe MECFS. To tell us about her life, how her life changed and her journey, I'm delighted to introduce Simone Isons to this podcast. Welcome, Simone. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for having me. So to kick us off, tell us a bit about you, why you care about people with MECFS and, you know, just a little bit about your journey. It's funny why I care about people with MECFS. I guess it's it's an interesting one too, question too, isn't it, because I think a lot of people who get involved in the MECFS community do so because they have a personal relationship with the condition, either they live with it themselves or they know someone who has the condition. You know, you look at a lot of researchers and clinicians and I think that's both interesting and a bit sad too that that it, it often takes that personal contact to really understand how devastating this illness is and to really realise that we need help. But so my journey started a long time ago. I It's both a really common story and a bit unusual too. I uh, got glandular fever, which is the common bit, way back in 1995, in my 20s, and um, didn't recover for a long time. So I was housebound for three and a half years, and I did the classic doctor shopping thing, and nobody knew what was wrong with me. And then I found someone who said, oh, well, you have this thing called CFS. And I was like, oh, okay, don't worry, you'll get better 
95% of people recover within 12 months. And so at that time, I thought, at that time I'd been living, I'd been unwell for six months and the thought that I could be unwell for another six months just blew my mind, just blew my mind. I just could not get my head around the fact that I could be unwell, this unwell, I was housebound at the time, for another six months. And so then when my one-year anniversary rolled around and I was still unwell, I thought, that doctor doesn't really know what he's talking about, does he? And I found then an, an online community. At the time there was MECFS Victoria and there was a small, back in the old news groups, some older people listening to this will remember those things, the old chat groups, and I joined one and suddenly I realised, oh, no, I'm not going crazy, I'm not alone. There are all these other people out there who are struggling like me, but because, you know, there wasn't really the internet in the same way, there wasn't Facebook and it was hard to access people. So it was a really isolating experience. I didn't know anyone. And what I did do at the time was I, um, MECFS Victoria at the time, set up a pen pal system so you could um, put your name down and you'd get allocated a pen pal so you could write to someone else in the country who, or in Victoria, I think it was limited to Victoria who also had the condition. And I did that with a couple of people because that also helped me feel less alone um, because I didn't have any doctors helping me. I didn't know what to do. I just was struggling and feeling really alone. And but, but so that was, I think that there'd probably be lots of people who would relate to a lot of that part of the story. Oh, and I'm getting out of breath already. A lot of people will relate to that too. <laughs> um but the bit that was unusual about my story is that I went into remission. So after about three and a half years, I got a lot better. So much so that I could work and I moved out of home and I, you know, did fun things. I went and studied African drumming and I joined choirs and I was sang in cabaret shows and I did a lot of things. And at the time, if you had asked me, I would have said I was recovered. That CFS, oh, that was something in my past. That's not part of me now. But I was never able to work full time and I was never able to exercise. And I kind of just ignored that bit, you know, because I was recovered. So in hindsight, really, and I was always pushing myself to keep up with everyone else, even though I was only working part time and I needed to rest a lot and I would structure my work around how I could rest and recover um, but I think that looking back, I think that's really interesting because I did consider myself recovered, even though I really wasn't. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I think that also highlights how much we accommodate to this illness. You know, we just adapt to the limitations that this, this illness imposes on us. Um, that, yeah, that to me, what was clearly still quite limited limitations that I had I was considering recovered, even though it wasn't. And then, so that, sorry. No, I was just going to say, do you think that has to do with, um, you know, the desire to, you know, keep yourself positive and have some hope and that, you know, you latch on to the little bit of feeling good and you think, well, maybe, maybe I'm okay, you know, and then you find I out. Think- is it sort of an up and down thing emotionally too? No, not for me. I think for me, because I had had, I actually did have 
significant improvement. Like I had been housebound and at my worst in that early phase, I needed help with bathing and, you know, I was quite significantly debilitated. But as we know for young people, the, the prognosis is a lot better. So I was lucky and I had a significant improvement. It was radically different. My functioning was radically different later than what it had been during that really bad three and a half years is not short, but it was short by comparison to a lot of people. And so I think it was just that really marked difference that made me classify it as recovered because it's so different, therefore it's over. And I wanted it to be over. You know, I really wanted it to be. I wanted to see myself as a healthy person. I've recovered. And I would... I didn't talk about it often, but when I did, people would say to me, how did you recover? And I, no, I had no idea. (laughs) So I would say I don't know. But I never said, oh, no, I haven't recovered. I still have, you know, these limitations and blah, blah, blah. I really just, I think because there was that marked difference in my mind, I just said, well, that obviously means that it's over now, even though I couldn't exercise really and I couldn't really work full-time either you know I ended up working in private practice because that allowed me to work around my limitations I could rest in the mornings I would work afternoons and evenings I could limit my hours as I needed to that really helped support my body but because I thought I was recovered it also meant that I pushed myself because I didn't understand that I had those limitations and so because of that that's why I ended up relapsing 10 years ago. Wow. And yeah. In 10 years? Yeah, to that nearly. In November this year, it will have been 10 years that, since I recovered. And so I really wished, I wish with all my heart that someone had told me, someone had sat me down and said, you know what, you are not recovered. You still have significant limitations and you need to be careful. You really need to be careful. They're some of the challenges, aren't they, um, mm. that you've you've struggled with. Mm. What does that do to you emotionally, Simone? The, the challenges? Mm. Um, oh, look, there's so many challenges, I think, with this illness. And I think about it in kind of two different ways. You know, the social model of disability says that the impairments that people with disability face have are not really the what causes disability. It's the, the the sort of social environment, you know, the lack of ramps and the and the lack of um, uh, ASL interpreters and Auslan interpreters and all those kinds of things. But I think for people with MECFS, it's both. You know, like the energy limitations that we have create a real sense of disability. You know, like I've had to rest for several days to be able to do this phone call, this interview today, and no amount of social support or any kind of support is really going to change that. Um, But then then the other part, the social part, I think creates enormous challenges. You know, the the wave, I think that that, and in many ways I think that that's worse because we end up feeling alone in trying to grapple with the the challenges of the disease. You know, the disease is so complex. There's so many symptoms and it's changes and it's unpredictable. You know, at one point, this was in my first um, 
episode or whatever you want to call it of the illness. I remember I was laying on the bed at night one night and I felt this sort of weird rumbling in my body. It was sort of subtle and a bit odd. And I was going through this phase where I was having lots of new symptoms come up. And my first thought was, ah, I wonder if this is a new symptom. Anyway, a few minutes later, there was a news flash on the TV that said that there had been an earthquake somewhere in Victoria, I don't know where, a few minutes, a little bit before. So what I had felt was an earthquake. Now, that sounds a bit odd to think, why would you think rumbling in your body was, wasn't an earthquake? But because I was going through so many different changes, so many different symptoms coming up so often, my instant reaction wasn't, ah, oh, is that an earthquake? My instant reaction was, ah, oh, is that a new symptom? And it's like you kind of, there's always something that you're having to deal with. But I think the bit that makes it harder to deal with those things that makes us often be alone in dealing with those things is the social stuff, is the lack of belief and the stigma. And, you know, whether that's from doctors, you know, I had a doctor say to me um, early on, a specialist, my GP sent me to a specialist who specialised in obesity, depression and sleep apnea as causes of fatigue. So when I went into this specialist, she, without doing any tests, diagnosed me as fat, depressed and having sleep apnea because, you know, those were the hammers that she had and so she saw me as having those nails. And when I kind of questioned her and I, you know, and she said, oh, you need to exercise and blah, 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 and I just burst into tears because I was struggling with everything so much and she interpreted my tears when she suggested I walk 15 minutes a day as just as resistance that I didn't want to. And so she said to me, well, don't you want to get well? Do you just, you just, you're just being coddled by your parents. You don't want to recover. And it's like I had lost my private practice. I had lost my dignity. I needed to be bathed by my retiree mother. I was just overwhelmed. And she really thought that I was getting something out of having lost all of that. Dreadful. It's hard to believe that um, that happens, but we know that it does. Mm. And, um, you know, we know that our clinicians tend to fall back on what they know is easy to diagnose. Or it must be sleep apnea or mm. it must be a weight issue. Um, you must have lack of exercise. So, you know, those are things that, you know, I would think doctors would, they're a standard, aren't they? You mm. know, do something about your diet, have a bit of exercise, but they're not hearing the patient. Mm. And and therefore what happened to you was that you feel totally invalidated by the clinician. You know, you don't matter. And, um, and, and that's what I'm hearing from you that's been your experience and, of course, we, you know, experience that and hear that all the time mm, from mm. others with MECFS. It just, it just must be so hugely, um, I don't know, disheartening and hurtful, and and you just, I can't imagine how that must make you feel when you go out of a clinician's room and you've been made to feel that it's all your fault. 
Yeah, and and that I'm just getting something out of this and just don't want to recover. And I think that, and it's not just clinicians either, like it's so common and so prevalent and I'm really lucky. Um, I mentioned, you know, my mum, I live with my parents who are elderly and they look after me and I get the most unbelievable care. And I have had, since my relapse 10 years ago, I've had some very slow, gradual improvement over the time. And I really think, yeah, and I think that a lot of that is due to the level of care and support that I get. Because the understanding. I get, the understanding. Yeah, everything. The, the, yeah. Whole, the whole package, you know, like the, the yeah. amazing food and the and the level of support and belief and just, yeah, so much. And so many people don't get that. So it isn't just about when you go to the doctor. It's also about what happens in your home and how stressful yeah. that is if you're having to battle that dis- disbelief on a daily basis. On all fronts. Yeah. 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 So, so, Sim, can you tell us what, you know, in this very difficult time that you've had, what made you get involved with advocacy on behalf of people with MECFS? Because people may not know, you, you are a, a font of knowledge for us at Emerge Australia. You, you ensure that... Um, everything we do is evidence-based. You've got an, an amazing um, capacity to overview research and what the latest things are that are happening. So um, what motivated you to get involved and 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 do the work that you're doing now? Um, well, thank you for saying that. Um, so I, as I said, I relapsed in 2013 and, again, I felt alone and overwhelmed, so I found the online community, which was much more developed than it was last time, and that was amazing in 2014. And I um, then went on low-dose low naltrexone, which was amazing for my cognitive functioning. I know that it doesn't help everybody, but it really helped me for my cognitive functioning. And I was looking for something to do. That sounds silly, doesn't it? But So as a psychologist, my motivation was about making a difference and my psych work was making a difference for an individual and I couldn't do that work anymore. But that's a really strong value for me, feeling like I'm making a difference and laying in bed, staring at the same four walls all the time, I was struggling with that and I wanted something that would take me beyond my four walls and would give me a sense of making a difference. And I looked around and I saw that there was action happening overseas, like in the UK and US, and there wasn't a lot happening at, in Australia at a national level. And there was sort of a new group that came together, all kind of thinking in sim- along similar lines around that time. And so I got involved for two for two reasons. One, because I saw that there was a need and, you know, the experiences that I had and the experiences that I was seeing lots of other people have and, that, and you know, the, the low-dose naltrexone helped me to be involved. Um, but also because it helped me, because it gave me a sense of purpose and it gave me a sense of identity and making a contribution, that there was something, you know, I was able to, I'd always had a science-y kind of brain. And so I was able to, with the LDN on board, I'll say it again, LDN on board, um, I was able to absorb some of that stuff and, and help 
digest it and share it with other people and I was able to understand the political landscape and because it is complex and there was, you know, there's always potholes and minefields that you can step on, which I know you've encountered yourself, Anne. Um, and so it was about a way of helping me as an individual but helping me as someone as living with this condition as well as tapping into the community. So, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Can I just ask you, is LDN still on board for you? Yeah, I've been taking it for a long time. It's probably the one thing that I can point to and say, yeah, that's made a real difference for me. You know, we've all tried so many things and so many things that have maybe helped a little bit or done nothing or made us just worse. Um, but this is probably the one thing, along with pacing, but the one thing that gave me like really tangible benefits, yeah. That's amazing. That's really mm. amazing. So, Sim, given the situation we're in right now in Australia with MECFS and, of course, long COVID's been added into that mix, um, if you were Prime Minister for a day... <laughs> What would you do? What do you think needs to be done in Australia to make a difference for patients? Could you just could you imagine if someone with MECFS was Prime Minister for a day? <laughs> we'd, have, we'd have to get their bed in Parliament House or something. Or <laughs> what a good idea that is. <laughs> well, you know, visibility. <laughs> That's a really good idea, Sue. Let's take you up on that. Um, look, as you know, I was on the NHMRC's MECFS advisory committee a few years back, and so I felt like that gave me an opportunity to um, have a bit of a wish list and 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 you know a conduit to kind of maybe put that forward and. And we certainly got the $3 million um, research grant out of that, which was fantastic and the first time that the Australian government had committed any money to biomedical research in like a decade or something. So that was great. But there are a lot of things that we recommended that haven't been implemented still, and that report came out in 2019. Yeah. So like clinical guidelines that we always go on about. Yeah. So if I was Prime Minister for a day, I would go big make the most of it. So I would set up a centre of excellence for MECFS. So anyone who has been diagnosed or who meets the criteria, whether it's from, you know, after COVID or after another infection or after some other trigger, MECFS is what it's focused on. And I think why I would do that and have a like a clinic in every major capital city. And the reason I would do that is because it would really ramp up research so suddenly there would be this it would make it easy to run clinical trials out of those centers it would make it easier to collect samples for biobank and to study patients but it would also do something that we really need which was which is to train expert clinicians and i know that emerged us a lot of work around gp education which is amazing and that that work really helps to um ensure that patients get care that is safe, not necessarily effective, but safe. So we're talking about 
making sure that GPs know that the condition is biological, that they know how to diagnose it, that they know how to provide really safe management. So pacing and not graded exercise and, and, you know, symptom management and that kind of thing. But expert clinicians go further than that. And expert clinicians is really where we get things like low-dose naltrexone. You know, they're the clinicians that really understand the condition on a deep way, in a deep way, and they understand the complexities of patients like us that have comorbidities and, and things that change and, and how ageing and things like pregnancy affect the condition and all those challenges. And we don't have many of those. Like I think you could probably count them on your fingers and not even need to take your socks off to count them on your toes. We really just don't have many. So I think a centre of excellence would give us an opportunity to, you know, if you fund it, they will come. It would, it would make it more attractive for clinicians to be interested and want to study this condition and become specialists in it, you know, because otherwise the few experts that we have are going to start retiring and we're going to have all that knowledge lost. And so if I was Prime Minister for a day, that's what I would do. I reckon that's a great aim. I think we should bottle that and send it to Anthony Albanese to put in his yes vote. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think I, I think you're right. Um, and, um, of course, we've got challenges in there, haven't we? It's yeah, of course. But it's fantasy. Valid. Well, yeah. I don't know that it is. It may not be fantasy. Um, I think that it's it's an interesting point for us to debate um, mm. government. Uh, it's just about the dollars really and yeah, yeah. it's about the strategic alignment uh, yeah. uh, which, you know, takes a bit of working out but mm. it certainly is a great aim and, you know, having someone who's bed-bound Prime Minister for a day, that <laughs> be a bad thing. <laughs> and I think also something like that Um really helps to validate the condition you know like a government funded center of excellence sends a very clear message that this is something that needs to be taken seriously and that it needs to be understood and it needs to be having appropriate care and, and all of those things yeah that we don't have yeah absolutely so um simone we'd like to think that lived experience brings wisdom what, what have you learned in your journey that could bring some hope and light for those who are living with MECFS and those who are going through similar experiences with long COVID? Where's the hope here for our cohort? So there's kind of two parts to that question. There's what have I learned and, and what gives hope? And so I might try and answer them separately if that's okay. Sure. Hope, because hope, I think, is a, is an interesting and kind of tricky one, I think, for us, because I think sometimes it's kind of an expectation that we should feel hope, you know, that almost a bit of pressure, it can be a bit dismissive, you know, oh, don't worry, things are going to get better. And, if, you know, like when you're living with this condition, sometimes it makes you think, well, are they like eh. um and so what gives me hope is a bit different so i'm going to use a metaphor so just stay with me for a second no worries. i think 
and because I think hope is about the possibility that things will be better in the future, yeah? So that's really about change and how change happens. And I think sometimes the reason that it's hard to have hope is because we sometimes think that change happens a bit like a switch, you know, like we'll get clinical guidelines and then everything will be sorted or we'll get a treatment and everything will be sorted. And I think change happens a bit different to that. So I think about it a bit like a glass of cordial. <laughs> you weren't expecting that. So you imagine you've got a glass of water and you add one drop of cordial concentrate to that glass of water and you stir it. It still looks like a glass of water. If you add another drop, it still looks like a glass of water. If you keep adding those drops, it still looks like a glass of water, but at some point it sort of starts to change. It sort of starts to look like a bit of a murky, but it still looks like a glass of water, right? And, yes, you've got to add a lot of drops to get to that glass of cordial. So for me, what makes me have hope is I'm looking for those drops. I'm looking for that tiny bit of change that shows that we don't have that clean glass of water that we had originally. And when you get that, when you're sitting with that murky glass of water, because it still looks like a glass of water, it's easy to think there's been no change. You kind of forget how it was before. So what gives me hope is noticing those changes, things like, um, the CDC taking graded exercise therapy off the website and the NICE guidelines acknowledging that the evidence for graded exercise therapy is low and changing the recommendations and the new um, draft delivery plan that the UK government has put out, like things like that, even the way we're portrayed in the media, like it's still not perfect, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were lazy and, you know, there's evidence-based treatments that are effective in the form of graded exercise and we just need to get off our bums and go and do that. And that was the standard. And it's not like that anymore. So what gives me hope is noticing not so much, we still have a long way to go, right? So I acknowledge that I'm not being dismissive of the difficulties or how much needs to change. But what gives me hope is the bits that have changed, the, the evidence of change that we see, because that is, is a process. Because like that murky glass of water, you can't go back to what you had before. Once it's starting to change, it might stall, it might slow down or it might speed up, but you can't go back. So the hope for me for the future is seeing the bits that are changing in the present. That gives me, that motivates me in terms of advocacy and in terms of being involved with Emerge and all of that kind of stuff because I can see the things that are changing, even though there's loads of frustration. If you ask anyone that's been involved in advocacy, there's so much things that are frustrating, but seeing those changes is what gives me hope. In terms of what I've learned, oh, so many things. I think one is acceptance, which is hard, but and I think acceptance too, not resignation, but for me acceptance is about making space for whatever's happening in this moment. It doesn't mean I'm accepting that this is how it'll be forever. 
or that nothing will change or anything. It just means that in this moment, I'm going to try to make space for how things are. And so that means on those really bad days when I can't do much at all and I just lay flat and I'm in pain and whatever, then I'm going to just accept that that's how this is for now. And it might be like that tomorrow too, but it also might not. So in that moment of acceptance, I'm also allowing for the possibility that it can be different in the future, but it might not be. So acceptance is one for me that helps me a lot. Another one is grief, acknowledging the grief. And there's different kinds of grief. You know, like there's the really intense grief that happens when you first get sick and your life falls apart. And for me, I felt like I was falling through the darkness and I had nothing to hold on to and I was desperately scrambling for anything to hold on to to stop my life falling apart and there was just nothing. And so that kind of terror and 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 sadness and loss of control as everything's falling apart. But then that kind of falls away a bit and it kind of goes into the background but I don't think the grief ever really leaves you know it's sort of it's more just in the background and then it comes in waves from time to time usually something will trigger it like maybe a birthday or an anniversary of something or you've missed out on something you know someone gets married and you can't go or or you experience yet another loss you know like there's all there's always seems to be something else that this illness will cause us to lose um and so I think just acknowledging that and making space for that grief allowing it to be helps me to acknowledging that it's normal and understandable to feel grief and that it's complex too um and the last two things I think are kindness to myself there's so much pressure in this world to do things and be things and whatever and so being kind and trying to just be okay and, and be nice to myself that I'm doing my best this is all I can manage and the last one I think I don't know if this is the most important but it's a big one so on my Twitter profile I have this statement that is if I had any spoons I'd be dangerous and I think that kind of sums me up pretty well but I also think it sums up our community. I think our community is really amazing. The level of knowledge that, that this community has about the condition and, and the science and the history and, you know, different types of treatments that people try and the way that the community, many parts of the community encourage that sharing but also try to protect patients from quackery and things like that whilst also respecting individual choice I think is pretty incredible and is what you really would want from a doctor and what most people don't get from their doctor too. But also what the community has done from our couches and our beds I think is also pretty amazing, you know, like rallies in in uh, in real in what's the word in person rallies and online rallies and government submissions and joining committees and you're sending letters to politicians and meeting politicians and so much stuff that this community has done that I think 
often just goes a bit unacknowledged. And so I just admire and have learned so much from our community. Um, I think a lot of people would be pretty lost without our community. I think we we get we learn a lot and we gain a lot from from connection to the community and support as well from the community. So yeah, I think that yeah. one. Yeah. So that kind of was wisdom. I think that was sort of my thinking around wisdom is from the community. Mm. Yeah. So, so the community obviously does so much to reduce some of that social isolation. Mm. Because you've got the intellectual stimulation, you've got the ability to reach out to people and say things like, I'm going through this. Have you experienced that? You know, yeah. how do you deal with this? You know, yeah. so yeah. They're, they're the things on a practical level. But what strikes me about the lovely steps that you've just taken us through is um, that you have developed in that a resilience through what you have been through and you know I think it helps to be a psychologist as well <laughs> having an understanding of what grief is all about mm. and being able to recognize that um, you know uh, there are days when you're going to be mad bad sad glad whatever and that it won't last forever um, but it is though, the hero. Though it might. Though it might too. It could. It yeah. could. Yeah. But here and now that you're focusing on and, you know, when I hear you say what you have said, it actually gives me strength. It helps to build me up because, you know, um, if if you can get to a point where you're saying, well, I just have to accept that today's a shit day and, but it's today, could be tomorrow, but it's today, then you know what? It means that others can give themselves permission to do that as well. And so that is where hearing from you so honestly about your experiences but also with the knowledge that you've got, I think that that is hugely helpful and will be hugely helpful to our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the final question I want to ask you is about that acceptance piece and um, about the importance of having that emotional support to help people understand where they're at. How important do you think that is and how can people get that? You know, you, you have had years of training and experience as, as a psychologist training undergraduates so you're very skilled and knowledgeable but not everybody is and how can you help people who aren't and and how can you help them to be able to get that little glimmer of how am I going to get over this and cope in everyday life what what can you tell them that will give them that little bit more of of hope that it might be bad today but it's today and then tomorrow will come and we deal with tomorrow. Yeah, look, I think the first thing that I would say is that I don't want it to make it sound like it's super easy or that I am always able to do that because that's really not the case at all. And so 
for me, I don't think about it as being resilient, I think, because I think that that can then also make it sound that for people who are struggling that they're not resilient and that can sort of feel a bit blamey for some people. So I, I kind of don't sort of go with that kind of framing. And I also want to acknowledge again that, yes, I am at the severe end of this disease and I'm not as severe as some, obviously, but I also have the privilege of incredible support that helps me a lot and not everybody has that. So I kind of just want to put that in there as well because, um, yeah, I just sometimes think that it can be a bit like we're saying that people need to do better and I know that's not what you're saying but I just want to make sure that um, the message that we send isn't that we're saying that people need to cope better or whatever. I think that people need to find what works for them. And I was really just talking about the things that have helped that me. Helped. You know, yeah, like I know some people who um, their faith is really important to them and so it's their faith that really helps them and I think that's fantastic. And And for other people it will be something different you know like maybe it will be that they have an art practice and it's that art practice that helps them um, process their emotions or whatever and I think that it's not really about doing what I do but really about finding the things acknowledging that it really is just shit sometimes yeah and unfair and just you know that sometimes the things are just bleh. Yeah. for want of a better word. <laughs> um, well, it sounds to me, sorry to interrupt, it sounds no, to me okay. what actually talking about is what is seems to be important is connectedness. Now, connectedness doesn't have to necessarily be to another person. It can be to your faith. It can be to um, something that you feel that you can do, you know, just as you've been outlining now is that is that something you know is that a term that resonates at all with you maybe like I think connection certainly can help and you know and as you said earlier that that support and and having community and definitely community for me helps and chatting to people who have the same condition or who have a different condition but experience some similar things you know like whether it's poor treatment with doctors or just limitations from having a, a, a severely limiting disease. Um, for me, acceptance helps, but that may not be the, the thing for everyone and acceptance is hard and I think, I think it is about finding the things that help you to cope but in that moment and it might not, and acknowledging that it might not always work either. Yeah. And also, I guess, being willing to say I'm really not coping right now and I need extra support and that might mean turning that's to hard. a mental health professional or whatever and that that's okay too. I've certainly done that myself. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I've said to people before that I use all the tools in my psych toolkit and I'm they think I'm joking and I'm really not, um, and I do, but... Um, and that helps me cope, but it doesn't mean that it makes it all hearts and flowers. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I have also turned to a, a psych um, 
when I've needed to. And I think the other part of it too is you, you mentioned resilience and I think the bit where resilience is maybe relevant is that I think what happens too is that this illness makes it harder to cope when you get extra things on your plate. So I had uh, four people die in my world in the space of eight months last year and that really knocked me around and I think it would have knocked me around anyway but with my health the way it is and that on top of it, um, I, I struggled to cope and I think that that's probably the thing that it's it's just harder. Everybody has their bucket and their limit of what we can cope with. And the illness itself and the stigma and the disbelief and all of that takes up like, I don't know, maybe three quarters of your bucket, maybe more for some people. And so if you put a little something on top of it, it and you don't cope, it's not actually that you're not resilient. It's that your bucket was already almost full. Yeah, and and I think that's probably something yeah. to think about. It's almost like the straw that breaks the camel's back, isn't it? It's yeah. just one little thing that comes in mm. on your full bucket and you go, nah, you know, and, and that yeah. that's that's the limit. Simone, I think that in this interview um, you've helped a lot of people to relate to what it feels like to have severe MECFS and you've so articulately spoken about um a whole range of issues that I believe our listeners are going to have great joy and and get a lot of information from. So I just want to thank you for taking the time. I know that, you know, you had to rest up yesterday for this interview and I really am grateful that you did because I think that our listeners are going to find it um, very, very instructive and helpful. So Simone Isons, thank you so much for your time and your willingness to share your personal experiences with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Anne. The following day, we heard back from Simone. We all want to present our best selves to the world. And people with ME-CFS are no different. So we can gather up our energy and burn bright for a short time, using our energy to give an illusion that we're just like everyone else. But then we pay the price afterwards. I think of my hemmed self and my non hemmed self as a bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, they're very different. So even though you can or you can't see the pain that I'm in or anything else that I'm feeling right now, hopefully you can hear it in my voice. This is the hidden part of this disease. The part that few people see. This is why ME-CFS is so disabling. 
and why we need help. Thank you. The Emerge Australia podcast series seeks to speak with people of influence and those whose voices need to be heard. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. Tune in again for our next interview and don't forget for more information and to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter, visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Simone Isons, thank you and bye for now. You may say that I'm a dreamer But I'm not the only one And I hope someday